welcome to the Screen Scene Society podcast, where people who work in the film industry watch a film or limited series and then gather in Zoom boxes to talk all about it. I'm Sabrina Firminger. And who are you? Christian. Who are Why, you, Christian? I, I, you, just, you just blew it. I had a nice intro. It was so smooth. And you roasted it right there. Uh, that's my job. Sorry. I was going to go a couple octaves lower be like, hi, I'm Christian Sloan. But now it's toast. So, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to call this Screen Scene Society to order. Uh, Sabrina, do you want to uh, let us know on our latest members of the Screen Scene Society who's joining us today? Who's joining us in our Zoom room today? Okay, right. so, so today's very, very special guests are two astonishingly talented and brilliant actresses. Johanna Newmarch, who is beloved around the world for playing Molly on When Calls the Heart, and Sandy Sidhu, who stars as Nazneen on Nurses. Also, these are my friends also. I'm so glad they're here. <laughs> okay. Christian, what film will we be discussing today in the Screen Scene Society? Well, before I dive into the film, I do want to uh, greet our two new guests as well. Uh, I want to say hi to Sandy, of course. Uh, I know Sandy uh, peripherally through meeting through the industry. Uh, we also have a mutual friend in Tira. Um, and I want to give a big shout out to Nurses, which just got picked up for U.S. distribution. Whoop. Woo! Nice. That's awesome. So That's congratulations. Huge. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Christian. Thanks. Oh, and good work. I called, you, I called you astonishingly talented. Why does he get all the thanks? Oh, man. Oh, Christian, let's get this show on the road. God. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Hold on. I want to say hi to Joanna as well. Um, and uh, before I introduce the film, I want to say that uh, Joanna and I have a little bit of a six degrees of separation to Hitchcock. Uh, we both worked in the Twilight Zones episode, uh, You Might Also Like, which happened to be directed by Oz Perkins, yes. who is the son of Anthony Perkins, yes. who, of course, starred in Hitchcock's, uh, one of his most famous works, Psycho. Right? Cool. Yeah. Very cool connection there. Well, well spotted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, how, how, I permit you that one, Christian. <laughs> how, Joanna, did you have fun working on that episode? I was... did, I did. I was only there for a day, but uh, it was a super weird, fun scene. And uh, the actor, the, the, she was fantastic and he was lovely. I mean, they were, you know, they were highly focused in getting her done, but it was great. It was so cool. It's freaking Twilight. It's Twilight Zone, right? You're like, wow. Yeah. Why are we was, talking was, about was... Hitchcock right now, Christian? Well, I was going to say I was one of the canamits. So that, uh, if you want to talk about weird, I had a giant latex bulbous head and uh, as one it was does. pretty bonkers. Yeah, there. as one does. Another but I bring, up the, uh, I bring up the Hitchcock element because we are actually discussing today Netflix's Rebecca. This is the uh, 2020 remake, the latest adaptation of the Daphne du Maurier novel, of course, which was most famously uh, adapted by Alfred Hitchcock in 1940. His film starred Laurence Olivier, John, Joan Fontaine, and Judith Anderson. And it went on to score Best Picture win at the 1941 Academy Awards, although Hitchcock himself was snubbed when it became to the uh, best director selection. Now, this latest uh, adaption that we watched is directed by Ben Wheatley. It's got Laurie Rose behind the camera as the director of photography. Uh, it stars Lily James as the narrator, the second Miss DeWinter. We've got Army Hammer as Maxim DeWinter. Kristen Stott, Kristen Stott. <laughs> Can we edit that part? No. Kristen Stott. Oh, my God. I'm murdering her name. <laughs> you are. She's so phenomenal. She's so phenomenal in this Kristen scene. Scott uh, Thomas. There we go. Thank you. As Mrs. Danvers. 
Uh, one of my absolute favorites, the incomparable Ann Dowd as Mrs. Van Hopper, and Sam Riley as Jack Favell. All right, uh, let's uh, dive in. Where do we want to start? What do you think, Sabrina? Ooh, I, okay, so this, this film was my suggestion. I brought this film to the Screen Scene Society for review um, without having seen it because I am such a fan of the original. And, uh, mm. and um, I guess uh, my... After watching this film, uh, I don't think uh, Netflix's Rebecca is going to be winning any Academy Awards, number one. Number two, I'm also kind of struck with the idea of, huh, do they really need to remake this film with it, without doing anything really different um, and actually doing a lot of things not as well as the first one? So that was my, that was, and I can get, we can get more into that a little bit later, but that was my, I, I just, I just was disappointed. I was disappointed. Uh -oh. oh, there was a lot I, I loved, but it was disappointing. So. I think you and I are going to go to war later because I actually, <laughs> I actually feel like, I actually, this is my hot take on this, but uh, I actually like this one better than the original. Oh, wow. I think, oh. I think, yeah, I know, I know it's. People, you, you can go to war, you can attack me, but I actually- Look at it, this is not a war zone. We have brothers in arms here, brothers and sisters in arms. I, I, the original? Did you see the original? No, I didn't even know, so I'm the one, Sandy speaking here. I had no idea this was based on original. I got a text message from Sabrina saying, hey, do you want to do this uh, podcasting to be reviewing a movie called Rebecca? And that's all I did. I just went to Netflix and I watched Perfect. it. Yeah. So, um, so you have fresh, fresh eyes. I love that. But it's interesting. I thought the plot and the story read, I, what I was going to say, my thoughts were it read pretty Shakespearean. You know, it was really dramatic. And it, I thought the story was just riveting and it moved you along. I thought it was very well acted. I thought it was very well shot. I thought the cinematography was stunning. The story at the end, I went, really? Like this Rebecca character... I think brilliantly was never shown. So mm -hmm. in the imagination of the audience, um, you're just like, whoa, like who is this chick? And it's brilliant <laughs> because as an audience member, every single person watching the screen has their idea of their own Rebecca, who's intimidating totally. and charming and brilliant. But then I was slightly disappointed, and this is just in terms of story, that this woman was so fabulous she ended up being a womanizing, like a, 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 like a promiscuous, you know, demonizing whore who deserved to get shot. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> yeah. Which is very much like what, what. Like she was okay. so amazing. She deserved to die. That was, yeah. I was just kind of like, oh, oh, okay. And then this man, the husband who shot her was so in grief, so imprisoned by this, incredible woman who was just so vile in the end that he would like as an audience you rooted for his well-being and you celebrated him having absolutely no consequences to taking this human life yes! you know it was that was <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, and I will get into it more later. Yeah, I, but in terms of like an audience, I mean, I couldn't look away. It was just so engaging, and I I was very happy to watch the movie. But at the end, I went, "Really? That's where it went?" I thought I, I actually was. Um, I didn't know anything about Hitchcock, so I 
half pie expected it to turn into like a supernatural horror because that's the way they kind of pitched it in um, the, 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 the teaser in before you start watching it. So the whole time I was expecting a ghost to pop out. You were expecting Hill House or Bly Manor. Yeah, I you know? was. Yeah. And I think it's just because I finished watching it. But those were my those are my kind of thoughts. It had more to do with plot and then, you know, the lack of complete diversity in the film. But oh, it's, it's, it's a period piece, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What about you, Johanna? Yeah, I just wanted to flag, like, so Sandy's coming in completely cold. I'm coming in knowing that there was absolutely being a Hitchcock fan and knowing there was a Rebecca and having seen clips of it, but it's actually one of the glaring Hitchcock movies that I actually haven't seen. And I was actually decided, like, should I, co- should I try and go watch it before I... And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to watch the new one twice. So I really, really get it. I let I let it go for a couple of days. Love and then your commitment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You're and um and then, so it's interesting. So we're you know I'm kind of midpoint. Sandy's coming in cold, and you guys definitely know the source material. So this is kind of a fun set of references. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> I've even read the book. Oh, so I go wow. I go back with it. So okay, so I just I be like I just need to to say this, and this kind of speaks to um, what uh, Sandy was talking about, about that womp womp ending. You know, the book was written in the 1930s. The film was, the original film was made in the 1940s. And so um, there's a, it was created with a, a different culture where, you know, men and women had different roles. And I guess I was hoping, you know, that, uh, they, uh, that if they were going to make a remake, especially a remake of a film that originally starred Sir Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, you know, that they would also, you know, do something to update that material, you know, to update, to bring it, uh, like, why do a remake? You know, why did Ben Wheatley right. need to do this remake? You know, especially when the, the first is so great. And I was thinking, okay, so they're going to make it more relevant for a 21st century audience and for 20th, 21st century, you know, adults who react way differently uh, than, than, you know, the people in this film would be. And unfortunately, I... Like, and I agree. I think the film is beautifully shot. Like, as somebody who has not traveled, like the rest of us, we haven't traveled. I was like, oh, take me to Monte Carlo. Oh, take me to, to England. Like, I was, I was eating that up. You know, I want to go on the cliffs of England and, you know, run after a dog or whatever they were doing there. Um, they, they're, but, like, they also followed, like, the original script so closely. They didn't update it in any way that would, you know, because the original was kind of clunky, but that's because the book was clunky. But they were well within their ranks to go in there and, you know, have a more compelling, believable ending for this age. And about the lack of diversity, um, the, the, there was no, – I don't remember watching this and seeing a single – person of color and I can guarantee you that there were people of color in England and in France you know uh, during this time frame and so for Netflix who has done some really wonderful period dramas where uh, they have seamlessly woven in people of color in a way that Hollywood hasn't before. Even Mari and I, we watched Enola Holmes recently, and that was just it was just done so well. Just there, mm-hmm. like for Netflix to do this and not at all either like you know address some of the sexism that's in the source material, you know, or address the fact that we are the world doesn't look this way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that they, they played it too close to, um, a little bit too, too close to trying to be like the original material. And, um, however, Kristen Scott Thomas, phenomenal. 
Um, Army Hammer, very swoony, um, although not as, <laughs> I don't think as charming as Sir Laurence Olivier. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I just... Can I say one thing about, they did make one little kick at the patriarchy. They did. And it was my favorite scene, actually, where, where, where um, Mrs. Danvers says, why shouldn't a woman get to play and enjoy and use herself. herself. Yes, and I was like, I love that line. Right? It's one of my favorite lines in the whole film. Same, same. And that was the only place they did it. And I'm like, you know, I'm not defending, you know, uh, you know, adultery or whatever, but it was just this great little, you know, like punch at the patri patriarchy. I was like, go. Oh. Anyway. That, that, it would have been better, I think, if the protagonist or, or Rebecca had been a more um, rootable character. I will say, what did we think, I will ask, what did we think of Lily... James in this role because I thought that she was it's Lily James right am I getting the yeah, name Lily, yeah, um, Lily James. I thought she was quite lovely I think that oh, she had to a lot of the film kind of rested on her her shoulders you know and also how we feel about you know uh, Maxim or how we feel about you know this presence of Rebecca I thought I thought she was uh she's feisty when she needed to be and um, a tragic figure at other times what did you think of and some and any of the other performances in this film you want to you want to shout out? Yeah, I mean, I'll just jump in. Agreed. I thought the performances were fantastic. I thought they absolutely delivered in every scene that they were in. Uh, I thought that they they were subtle when they needed to be. You know, it's you know, it's a as an actor, you know, when the camera's right here, it's so easy to do too much with your face. And I thought she was subtle and wonderful when she needed to be, and you know, uh, gripping when she needed to be. I thought all the characters, I mean, obviously a particular mm -hmm. shout out to Kristen Scott Thomas, cause that's a difficult role. And I thought she was yeah. fantastic. Um, I actually thought that Keely Hawes who played the sister did a lovely job as well. Yes. Um, so I thought the for, for performances were fantastic. I'm just gonna go for a tiny little side note here. I read an interview recently with Ben Wheatley who I'm um, a big fan of his film, uh, was it called High, High Rise? The, the, uh, yeah, 2015 with Tom Hiddleston. Oh my goodness, well, we'll, we, maybe if we have some time at the end we can talk about that, but that's a doozy of a movie. Yeah. Um, he talked about his, audition, uh, his uh, casting process and mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. He, he's not a big fan of um, having actors audition the actual material. He likes to actually watch videos of people being interviewed or talking or just being themselves. And he mm, chooses whoever yeah. he feels is appropriate for that role. And he says, if you don't get it right, then that's really on you as the director for not casting the person who you think is most naturally that person. So I thought that was wow. kind of... Yeah. It's really interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, I, I thought um, the acting was fantastic. I actually thought yeah. my own, and it was already a two, two hour movie. My only thought, and maybe as you say, the source material is a little bit clunky. I felt like there could have been more shading, but it would have meant more screen time. And I know two hours is already a long movie in this day and age, more shading to build up the love story, a little bit more uh, n nuance and detail, uh, you know, making us really feel the romance and the passion. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I felt, I felt there could have even been more detail, but it's such a big unwieldy story as it was. I know two hours, as you say, that's it. But, but I did feel like we, I wanted um, a little bit more detail with, with the buildup and the, the climax and the denouement. I wanted more, a little bit more shading. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think, Sandy? I think that Lily James is an actress who really excels in romantic relationships and really revealing to an audience how to tap into that vulnerability, like her ability to be sensual on screen, coy, like just how a person is when they're in love. She's 
she's completely in control of her faculties as an mm. actress and her range in romance is like unreal. I think that she's just dynamite when it comes to this kind of role. And actually, I didn't actually know who she was before this shockingly. And I, I just went, Oh my God, she's going to explode. And I was like, Oh, she already did. She was in the <laughs> <laughs> and what was that lovely, the Guernsey, the Guernsey, whatever club that, that was also a romantic, lovely. Did you guys see that one? The, no. I haven't. No, oh, it's, no. It's, delightful. it's a very similar. No, kind of so I, I thought, she, I think she's really, really talented. And, yeah. um, just really did. like you said sabrina she really carried um carried the story and i think maybe johanna um the reason you wanted to see more development was because it was so exciting to watch it between them agreed yeah yeah i thought it was a lot more successful um telling the love story already than watching the original like watching the original so basically the way i came to it is i watched rebecca on its own first so i completely came to the story on my on its own and dealt with it on its own merits and then went back and watched the original Rebecca. And I think for myself, I thought there was way more nuance between Army Hammer and Lily James than there are there is with uh, Lawrence Olivia and Joan Fontaine. Like I really liked uh, Joan Fontaine's performance, but I actually found Lawrence Olivia and I know it's the style of the time and the music does so much for it back in the 1940s, but but I thought Army Hammer brought way more hurt, uh, way more damage, um, and and way more of a man kind of yearning. Uh, I don't know. There was just a much more three dimensional. He was camera. amazing. What, yeah, like oh, he brought a real nice. He brought a real nice nuance that I didn't feel Lawrence Olivia brought. Lawrence Olivia, it felt a little paychecky to me. Like it felt like he showed up and he's like, Whoa. okay, now I get mad. Now what I get this? mad here. Yeah. Whereas I felt like Army Hammer found a way to incorporate his bouts of rage um, into uh, a story. He just felt like a much more three-dimensional character to me. Now I know, again, like 1940 is a particular style of acting and a particular style of filmmaking and directing. And, and, and you know, I, I feel like now we're, as actors, allowed a lot more nuance and a lot more uh, ability to play and look at those elements. But I, I just felt like the performances in this, um, certainly with, um, certainly with Army Hammer, what's, what's a superior version. I, oh, wow. I am and, and so again, excited again. to disagree with you most vociferously, <laughs> Mr. Sloan. Well, well I would, and what's, what I found sort of exciting about it is at the end, like, you know, like, a, like uh, I think Sandy brought it up earlier, I'm rooting for these, these, these two to get together, and I'm, like, excited. And then I'm like, wait a sec. He shot her in the stomach, man. Like, he <laughs> put a bullet in his ex-wife because of her infidelity and stuff, and he's – He's kind of a murderer, which, again, this is actually another point that I'd sort of like to bring up, which I found fascinating, uh, versus this versus the 1940 film while we're sort of discussing. So in 1940, the Motion Picture Production Code, or the Hayes Code, uh, in 1934 imposed a large number of restrictions on what could be actually shown in the films. And one of the rules was that a crime couldn't be shown in a positive light, and that anyone who committed murder would have to be punished for their actions, like go to jail or wow. be killed themselves. So in the 1940 film, uh, uh, he's, he's sort of having his squabble in the little boathouse. Uh, spoilers, by the way, we'll call out spoilers because I think we're starting to dive into the story. Itself. Oh, so many spoilers. Uh, spoiler alert yeah. all over this podcast. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But when, when he's having the arguments in the original 1940 film, she like slips and falls and knocks herself out. And that's uh. how she dies. Whereas in this one, it's true to the book. In the book, in the in the original book, he shoots her. So he couldn't 
uh, Hitchcock couldn't get past this Hayes code. And so he couldn't allow him to shoot her and then also get away with it at the end. But I sort of find, yeah. what's that? Thank you for that. That's so fascinating. Trippy, right? And so now because we've sort of done away with those Hayes codes, we're allowed to like get away with that. But I need to talk about, we need to talk about Army Hammer before we move on. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Because I, I, this is, this is my issue with Army and, putting him up against Sir Laurence Olivier, um, but you don't even <laughs> I told you, need to. I told you it was a hot take. It is a very, it is, is it? It's a, it's a hot something of something. No, I, we, 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 I respect your opinion. Here's mine. Um, I, one of the things that I love about the book and also the original Rebecca is that I was watching, like I love romance, you know, and I love tragic and doomed romance. And, um, Lawrence Olivier's portrayal uh, of this character was that somebody that I, he was somebody I could root for. I could feel his love for, you know, his, his new wife. Um, Army Hammer was so into himself, like, and so ghastly and just seemed to be like pivoting and pivoting that I really felt like it was, you know, it was the new Mrs. De Winter against everybody. Like, I didn't know half the time if he was going to kill her, you know? So I just had a really, I I think that I didn't consider him to be as much of um, a team player, team player, you know, with Lily, you know, in building that romance and, um, not as charming or as whimsical or, you know, so when, so when at the end, when he's like, ah, well, like, you know, maybe it's like two thirds through is like, actually I hated her. You know, I was like, what? Oh, okay. Even though I knew it was coming, but it was like, really? Like, <laughs> I, but who do you love? Just yourself because you're so like tortured and mean. So that's, that's the, I just didn't feel like it's a, it's a, such an odd kind of genre as well, you know, because it's like, it's got this, it's, you know, the film noir over it, you know, and some kind of ghostly thing happening as well, or at least implied. Um, And it's a romance, you know, which I was not feeling the romance of this one. If anything, it was like a love letter to a house, you know? Uh, And then by the end, I'm like, just burn it down. I'm cool with it. (laughs) Oh, the dog's okay. They both live. Okay, fine. Whatever. You know, maybe they can be free. As someone who's obsessed with design, I was like, oh, all those beautiful things are burning. (laughs) That's what I thought too. (laughs) You know, Sabrina, I, hearing your point of view, having not seen the original, I totally hear what you're saying. He definitely did have this really wounded he was carrying himself in such a damaged way like he was always in another thought and he was he was never really quite in the room with her yeah um but you know i think for me that's the reveal i think he i think that's why the audience was so surprised that he didn't love rebecca because it seemed like he was so in love with rebecca yeah. So I think the story for me as a viewer was different. Having not seen the original, I didn't even know that he was supposed to love her as the new wife as much as he did. But I, what I felt was a really nuanced performance where he was trying. He was trying really to move on and carry on. And he couldn't let go of this ghost of this woman. And, you know, he kept, you know, seeing the best in 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 Lily James, but um, couldn't. But I, I agree with you on everything you're saying. He did do those things. He wasn't really present. He at the end, you know. Um, though I was a bit surprised at how much he loved her inevitably because he didn't really quite make those attempts. 
you know, throughout. But at the same time, I saw a man fighting to love her mm-hmm. as much as she deserved. But he just, you know, the um, just kept getting squandered through the plot. And him, he's been like, oh, I don't know any more about her. That's kind of the sense I got. Well, that, was, that would be something that I would bring up about. Like, I do feel like there was some, there's some flaws in the writing itself. Like, uh, like for myself, like, why would Maxim keep Mrs. Danvers um, in his employ? And why would he allow, if he hates Rebecca so much, why would he allow a shrine to be meticulously maintained in the house, in the best room in the West Wing? Why would he allow True. all those sort of things to happen for a year? Like, I mean, I, I would get that maybe he wants to cover. It was a murder. He feels guilt. Maybe he's trying to cover and allow those things. But but in, in the house, those are, I don't know. So I felt like that was more a flaw of the writing that it's in the novel. You can't get around it. I felt like it, it's, it's a tough pivot. And I agree. I do think it was a tough turn that he suddenly hates her. But watching the original back, it's also still a tough turn. And I would imagine, I haven't read the book, but I would imagine it's kind of, I mean, uh, Sabrina, you've read the book. Would you say that the, the turn of, no, I always hated her, I hated her, works in the book better than it does in the movies? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's been a while, but yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't, it wasn't as jarring. Um, I guess, what, what do you think about this idea that I had that if they were going to remake this, they should set it in a different time period? You know, um, yeah, Sandy, you did a cool finger pointing thing. Please, please elaborate. Because I like, I would have preferred something, you know, that would be more relevant to even set it in the 80s, you know, Bly House, Bly Manor was set in the 80s and that was great. Like just to do something where it's not, you know, if you're, if Netflix is going to be spending a bunch of money on this and they clearly did make it so that it's more representative of what the world looks like. You know, anyway, Sandy, what were you saying with your friend? I mean, it's everything you just said. That was it. I mean, there's no point in me adding (laughs) comment because that's that's actually, you said it so well. It's, they didn't do any sort of reinvention with it. They set it in a time period where it makes it look like there was absolutely no immigration whatsoever in the community. And it was just like only white people were allowed. Because like, even in the background, I looked and I'm like, not a single person of color in the streets, like really? Like Monte Carlo even, and like, yeah. Like, no, I, I was I just kind that. of, I was really disappointed yeah. because if you think that cinema doesn't make an impact on signaling to an audience and uh, about sharing stories and what, what, what a time was like, they do, they do make an impact. There is an unconscious signaling that happens. And so, you know, it's okay. I'm not, I think we have to be careful that not, like if you want to tell stories that were in a time period where it was um, people of wealth or Caucasian, go for it. But if you, but then if you're going to make that story, at least try to make the, the people, if, if there's no people of color that are in the forefront that are leads, then at least try to represent the world accurately. Mm-hmm. At least continue to take that responsibility in, in inclusion in that way, because then you're showing that you don't really care. Mm-hmm. It's like something that you'll do in your next project as like, okay, I guess we'll add diversity in this point, but it wasn't like, I'm just shocked. There wasn't one conversation at the table around, should we have diversity in the extras? Like when you made your hires, did you not, was there a conversation around keeping it inclusively white and why, why did that have to matter so much? You know, it's like, 
it's a period piece, yes, but it's like, can't we tell stories that there were people at least walking down the street that were people of color? Yeah. I was pretty disappointed in that. And it feels intentional because there are, at this day and age, extras are every walk of life. And if you're doing a casting call, you're rejecting a certain number of extras yeah. from that film that are people of color. And so there's got to be a rejection to that process. And so that was one thing I'm like, it's a little thing. I, it didn't, I didn't mind that the story was predominantly white because it was a period piece. But I personally would have been really excited about the idea of a, of a re reinvention where why did you have to keep the story to that? But that's just mm -hmm. me because I'm fighting for a more inclusive, um, you know, progress towards storytelling that has a little bit more um, consciousness around those topics. Well, I think I, I completely agree with what you're saying, Sandy. And then there's also the fact that it's not just you and it's not even just me. It's Netflix. Like they're the ones they have, they are so keen uh, you know, with their strong black leads and with so many of their other other shows, you know, that they've released in the last year. I'm thinking of like Warrior Nun. I'm thinking of Enola Holmes. They're, they're so diverse, you know, on both sides of the camera. So to to spend all of this money making a remake, you know, and also it looked like there were a lot of women in the production team as well, you know. So it's like if that is diverse in other ways. But yeah, to I not even make an an effort to address because Monte Carlo I mean I've been there it's on those it's on the sea like it's their boats coming and going all the time they could have made some kind of effort you know or asked if it was going to be all white why this project you know why why do we want to bring do a remake of this project sorry Christian you you said I and then I kept talking <laughs> no 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 it's all good <laughs> I mean I do have to say again what going back and watching the original Rebecca I can see the attraction of wanting to capture uh, the cinematography more completely, like the style of the car, like that 1930s car, the, uh, the sumptuous of likeness. Cause like, you know, like a lot of it was rear projection um, and sets and, you know, establishing shots and miniatures in the original Rebecca in the 1940s. Oh, okay. Rebecca. Like, like the mansion is, is actually a miniature that they shot. So I could okay. see as a director wanting to go back and capture an era and be able to shoot it sumptuously with like Monte Carlo. It's very cool, but like how he does the palette because while they fall in love, it's a very warm, sumptuous when they're on the mm -hmm. beach, the colors mm -hmm. are gorgeous and warm. Um, and then once they move to Mandalay, um, then it becomes a very cold, dark blue film. And I enjoyed that progression and I understand why you would want to, you know, the suits and like all that kind of stuff. I think, I could see a director getting excited about wanting to visit that era. But I do think, I mean, I think that's something I would lay it less at the feet of Netflix. I mean, I don't necessarily want to, I don't know because I, I had no part in it, but I would also feel like that's got to be laid at the feet of the director a little more. Like I think, I feel like Netflix does do its due diligence and really tries to bring stories from all across the world. So I think that was more, Ben Wheatley has a bit of clout and he's been a really interesting filmmaker for the last few years, you know, bringing some interesting things. So I would lay it more at his feet. What I would imagine, as I understand it, Netflix tends to be, especially if they're dealing with more auteur, like they were going to go in and tell uh, Scorsese how to shoot the Irishman. They were, and right. I would imagine with this guy, they probably were less hands-on. They were kind of like, here's your production. You do what you want to do. I think that's probably one of the reasons why he wanted to work with them is he had that freedom. So I think that's more, you know, laid at his feet for not uh, diversifying the cast more or looking at ways. 
Um, I will but, say, like, I did. But can I, I just did, say, like, Christian, like, to, to that point, though, I mean, it's not like when I think of this film, I mean, I didn't watch it because it was Ben Wheatley. I'm watch, I watched it because it was on Netflix, you know, and Netflix has come out front making proclamations about diversity and about hiring practices and stuff. Like, I would, if it's, if it, doesn't fall like it should be fall at their feet you know especially if they're the if they're the money and like if you're like if you want to work for Netflix you know you should have to be like and this, these are all the ways that I'm going to you know I'm going to uh, push for diversity you know like I just and, and because they have been so out front you know from from taking a strong stand you know in the wake of the murder of George Floyd um, you know to just like the proof is in the pudding in a lot of their other programming that's there so but it's Again, i'm not trying to erase erase uh, guilt or late fault i'm just saying i could i could see that it would be more laid at, laid at the director simply because you know because he has some clout i think that that the onus was on him to make that to really i because i i agree like i think if you take a look at like certainly Monte Carlo, I mean, again, when you get to Mandalay, maybe it's a smaller thing, but I, I, even I watching it was like, like, why is everybody white? Like literally every soul in this is white skin. And it was kind of, it was kind of almost disorienting in this day and age. But I mean, I, but would, should we go back? Like, like, yeah, like an eighties version of this would be fascinating and interesting. Um, but, you know, like, I also recognize that maybe it's because, like, and here's another movie that, that was, like, sort of a shot-for-shot shot remake of a Hitchcock movie. It was the Psycho, um, which uh, uh, Gus Van Sant made. And it was, like, with uh, Vince Vaughn. I don't know if anybody remembers this. And, you know, like, what an odd and kind of fraught choice. Like, why would you go back and improve on literally the best picture winner from 1940, like what, what is to be gained as a filmmaker, you know, unless, you know, you have an absolute adoration of this film and the era and the, the time it was made in and wanting to like sort of capture that era, you know? Yeah. Johanna, what, uh, Johanna. I'm curious to her thoughts. I'm curious to, uh, <laughs> yeah. Johanna's thoughts on it. I, I'm I, yeah, I'm, cu I'm curious about your thoughts. Um, about about the diversity or lack thereof, and also about your thought of as to and I'll I'll open this to everyone else as well. Like, should they have bothered remaking this film? Yeah, well, the diversity thing. I mean, I was sitting here ruminating on it, and I wonder. And you just don't know because you weren't part of the. Who knows? You know, we weren't part yeah, of. Yeah, we're all. But but I was wondering if perhaps there would have been some sensitivity to. I mean, obviously there was some very wealthy people of color in that part of the world, even in the mid thirties. Mm -hmm. um, and it would have been fascinating to include if there was, uh, you know, overt discrimination to people of color staying in that particular hotel, wouldn't it have been wonderful if there was, because um, I, I, I genuinely don't know what Monte Carlo's, you know, vibe was in that in the 30s. I have an I have my own ideas, but I don't know how accurate they were. Um, if there was like a you know a couple, a very wealthy, well dressed couple who were you know a BIPOC and they showed up and they were turned away, like even a, just a subtle scene of that. Do you know what I mean? Something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if there was some sensitivity to perhaps the idea that maybe some of the staff would have been BIPOC and maybe they didn't want to show that it was just st I'm one I'm literally wondering out loud yeah. if they were sensitive to oh great well there's BIPOC people but they're all s servants or something right. I don't, you know what I mean I I, I I would imagine that that might be something that 
they maybe rather than deal with, they kind of just ignored, which is probably maybe not a great choice. Um, anyway, <laughs> these, are these are just some of my thoughts. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would have rather been had a, had some, you know, Indian people as a staff there, you right. know, I mean, cause this is, or then not be included at all because at least yeah. it would accurate, but you know, also there were wealthy Indians. There were wealthy, you know, you know, people from the middle East. There were like, that could have been there, you know, but to, to be completely not acknowledged in any oh, way when we were there. That's why Enola Holmes, which is totally very different, but you know, it's, it was such a joy because for my daughter as well, like she was like, wow, look, there's an Indian person there, just like granddad. And, and like, that was, that was so cool. Like just to, that, that she gets to watch a period piece that actually shows that we exist throughout all of time and space. And you know better having worked for Doctor Who is all I'm going to say. Maybe maybe they kind of just like were so uncomfortable with the, with the class system of it that they kind of just ignored it, which, you know, is, you get what I'm saying. Like, I'm not justifying it. I'm, and I completely agree with you that it was possible. I know at home showed it was possible and how empowering and important that was, as, you know, as, as someone watching with your daughter, you know. So, uh, yeah. And, but it would have, but how much would it have said, even in just one short scene, if, and I'm not, I don't know what the policy of said hotel would have been in 1935, if a very elegant, fabulous, you know, BIPOC couple had showed up and for, were whatever, turned away for whatever reason, like, wouldn't that have been powerful? It, yeah, you know, if I may interject, say. it would be very powerful because there's a film called 1917. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. And there's, yeah. a, there's a scene where the lead, um, is briefly met by a cavalry of men and he's sitting in the back and there's a Sikh man with a turban. Yes. That yeah. was so powerful yes. for me. Love, loved it. Because Sikhs had been known to immensely help win the wars. And so to have actually authentically put a figure there to show what it was really like yep. was really powerful for me because that was a true story. Yep. You know, that is true. And it was a moment that meant a tremendous deal to me. And I ended up, and it was a Caucasian lead male, yep. you know, and it, it was predominantly Caucasian, but that moment yes. for me meant to me that the filmmaker cared about inclusion as best as he could. And I, I celebrated the film. And I think that if, you know, filmmakers had the, if, I think nowadays filmmakers are underestimating just how powerful that feeling is for people of color when they watch a film and when you when a when a director makes something uh, makes a choice as thoughtful as they did in 1917 they don't realize the positive re reinforcement they're making with people of color in wanting a movie like that to succeed because then uh -huh. you're you're celebrating stories and yeah. you know with rebecca they could use the argument that they were really just paying homage to the original but you're leaving a group of people out that are feeling left out yeah. that are but feeling more like your, more to your point they were actually there it's not like 1917 created a storyline right. that was true right. so that, i think that's more to the point rather yeah. than putting in you know diversity where it didn't exist no it was there it was there yeah yeah, yeah so uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay so well, no, no it's true this this movie's made in 2020 and and like while i still yeah I, I i respect that they wanted to keep it in that era and and maybe capture that magic of that yesteryear but i certainly think that yeah they could have dived a lot more into those aspects i mean even you know even miss you know like like i said i love and doubt but maybe that character right there could have you know 
been brought in as a different way. You could have made a change there, you know, but I guess, I don't know, it's, Oh my God, Ima imagine how disruptive and exciting it would have been if they had updated the film, you know, a bit, uh, maybe moved it up a few decades and uh, the new wife could have been South Asian or something, you know, like they could have like really taken some yeah. some risks. But I guess like that really brings me back to that question of, of a remake like do we do we think this film this concept was was deserving of a remake is this a successful remake did they nail it like what what are what are our thoughts here especially let's start with sandy because you you saw it fresh which i love that that's what happened you know so you don't didn't have a you know a remake to compare like the original film to compare it to well i'm to follow up on what Christian had said about remaking Psycho and why, because it was a perfect film. I think the allure for filmmakers is to introduce a story to a new audience that maybe wouldn't go back and watch fil older films just because they feel too disconnected from it within their own generation. Yeah. And they're not the type of cinephiles to go back and just watch old films because they don't feel as much of a connection to wanting to do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, but again, no, knowing very well that if a film's essentially like perfect, you're probably not gonna come close to being able to replicate the, the that kind of success again. Yeah, I I was really happy to have watched the film. Um, remakes to me, I understand. For I, I have that positive outlook of like, well, you're just reintroducing that story to a fresh audience mm -hmm. who don't know the narrative and um, just don't have the, the care to look at art, which is cinematic history back. I watched it and I, I again, it was just that really that it, the diversity thing really did kind of irk me. So I was disappointed, but it was such a great film. It was so fun to watch and I didn't mind <coughs> knowing that like now knowing that it was a remake i'm still really glad i watched it but it does make me want to go and watch the original now that it's um that i know it's alfred hitchcock i watched it on curious. youtube it's on youtube yeah, yeah. okay yeah. Yeah, you can watch it yeah you can watch, you can it, watch it for free on youtube really yeah. you know i don't i don't mind that there's a remake <laughs> at all i think the story was really really fun the end, the plot, the story about the woman being so incredible, she had to be shot. I, I think they could have done something else with it, but if it was based on a novel, then their hands were tied. So, kind of locked um, in a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't know it was based on a novel. So obviously I think being based on a novel, they did the best that they could, but again, a bit of irresponsibility towards um, uh, a time and a culture right now that is really pushing for diversity. And it's something you shouldn't really miss. It's it's a little irresponsible. Absolutely. Can I, can I throw a question out? Like as we're while we're talking, while we're on the subject of remakes, like, do you think there's a window of time that is necessary? I'm just gonna throw this out to the panel because, and, and here's a horror story for you. Uh, Tom Holland has confirmed that uh, there's been talks for remaking Back to the Future with him as Marty McFly. Like, yeah, Sabrina, if, this is a podcast, but if you could see everybody's faces right now, I think you would understand, right? So again, like, I mean, yeah. what a, I don't know, my, yeah, exactly. My instant reaction is like, why? Why would you mess with literally what is perfection? For me, perfection. Like, what, like, like I have, I have a son, he's just turning five, and I'm like sitting on Back to the Future being like, I can't wait to show it to you. I can't wait, because I want him to be 
you know, uh, emotionally intelligent enough to like and be involved in the story and get it. But I, it's one of those movies where, again, if you pitch it on a paper, you're like, what a horror show, like incest and all sorts of terrible things. But, but, but the way it's paced and put together, it's phenomenal. So why would you go back and remake that? Now, is it a window of time? Because this, from this Rebecca to the other Rebecca is 80 years. Makes sense. You know, at, at a window like that, maybe it's time for a fresh take on this new story. Or do it would, different or do it no. like tell the story some somewhat differently. You know, I, I think Tom Holland is a fantastic actor and I could see him have that Marty McFly kind of energy. I just don't like we're not in the 80s, you know, so like set it now and he can go back to the future of, you know, or go back to, like, go back to the 80s or something. Like, I don't know. Like, like going back to the 80s. Yeah, yeah. like, homages are great. In, you know, inspiration, story points are great. But remaking something just like, you know, it's almost kind of like, oh, I, I, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say it. It's like karaoke almost, you know? Like, I want to be, <laughs> I, I'm Tom Holland and I'm a big star and I want to remake that because I want to be Marty McFly too and do it exactly the same. It's like, no, man. That Huey I, Lewis in the news is not for you, bruh. <laughs> No. <laughs> I do think though, but I think Sandy, your point is absolutely right. It's that every 20 years, it's a brand new fresh generation. And unfortunately, the average person doesn't, isn't interested in filmic history, isn't interested in musical history, isn't interested in, we're, you know, the youth, and I'm painting with a broad brush, and there's obviously <laughs> dramatic exceptions to this rule. Um, you know, I know many young people who love old films and old movie, but in general, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interacting with young people all the time. I have a 22 year old daughter. I teach, uh, you know, anywhere from eight to, you know, whatever I teach a huge range of people. So I'm getting, I'm always reminded because I am <clears throat> middle-aged. Uh, I am always, I love you, Johanna. Thank you. I babe. said before that I have a huge girl crush on you. Uh, right, back, right back at you. Um, <laughs> I love but, all this love. I'm, I'm constantly reminded guys by how by how absolutely only current people's knowledge is. Like, I'll make a reference that I think everybody should know that's not even particularly old and they just stare at me blankly, do you know? Yeah. So it is, a, it is a shame, for better or for worse, but that's where we're at. And so I can see from a, from a Netflix point of view or a directorial point of view, they're like, hey, for all intents and purposes for the next generation, this is new. Back, the original Back to the Future, as much as it annoys us, never existed for them. Dukes of Hazard never existed. I'm trying to just pull out remakes off the top of my head, whatever. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, Christian Jane Like I remember Jane Eyre came out a few yeah. years ago with Fassbender. Um, like all these wonderful, anyway. Uh, so love it or hate it, I think remakes are, are, you know, important just because they do offer a great story to someone, a generation that would never otherwise see it. Yeah, you were saying Sandy. You were um, interjecting. Well, I'm just saying specifically when it comes to Back to the Future, I think the only exception that would apply are movies that still have cult followings and mass like people like I would say films like Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, E.T. These sort of films are still being watched. They haven't been forgotten in the vault of cinematic history. Back to the Future, you still can find merchandising to buy. Mm -hmm. I bought a DeLorean from Playmobil the other day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I would say that like you have to read the room a little bit and Audiences are still connected to Back to the Future, the original one, and and parents are still introducing the original to their kids. And we did a few days ago. Mari watched the first one a few days ago. I mean, exactly, exactly. So I would say that, like, if if there if, if there's a film with that type of enormity in success, then 
why are you doing a remake? It's too soon. Yeah. Right. Like the original is still moving on with success. Right. Sorry, Tom Holland. That's a no on your remake. <laughs> <laughs> that's a valid point because as yeah. you say, Rebecca or Jane Eyre is such ancient history for the current generation that, yeah. 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 So why don't we do that thing we do? in the Screen Scene Society podcast and, and just go around the Zoom room. Is this a film we'd recommend to others? Well, before, before we dive in at the end, there's a couple other points I would love to just sort of throw out to the, to the, to the crowd. Okay. First off, first off as, a, as just as a pure hypothetical, like I love that we never meet Rebecca, but I would love to know who you would see cast as Rebecca who would you ca- like who in your mind as you were watching the film as this person flowered into your imagination what actor would you have cast as Rebecca Angelina Jolie mm. Mm. that's nice that's a nice take uh, Joanna wow uh, Angelina obviously is iconic and jumps to mind I hate to say it I feel like it would have to be someone younger for that to because you know she how old would she have been when she was killed 30, yeah, 20, probably like late 20s, maybe. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Early I, 30s, I, I, maybe. I can't come up with a name. Come back to me. Someone else. Okay, come back to you. Sandy, yeah. you got someone off the top of your head? I don't, because when I watched the film, she was just this ethereal creature that I imagined being brunette mm-hmm. because the girl was blonde. But I also was mad I imagined her being a brunette at the end because I'm like, the dark-haired girl can't be the evil one. I would say Angelina Jolie in her 20s would have been perfect. Yeah. Um, so weird. You know, I, I don't, nothing comes to mind off the top of my head because I, I, like that, I like that you never see her. I like that every audience member can imagine for themselves because it, imagination is a lot scarier and intimidating mm-hmm. than when I think if they were to reveal an actual actress, yeah, then it, it would have just been moot. Angelina in her twenties though, still had this kind of like baby face, like warmth going on. Angelina in her forties though, is like, I'm trying to think of like a younger woman who is so formidable, you know, and uh, it's and, I, and I, devastatingly yeah, beautiful. Yeah, give it, give it some. My, my, uh, mine would have been another Rebecca, Rebecca Ferguson, who I don't know if you guys have uh, yeah. watched much of her work, but uh, most recently I watched her in Doctor Sleep, and she is fucking phenomenal in Doctor Sleep. Like she absolutely kills it. She's just got this equal like grace and beauty, but then can turn like very evil in a in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And she's got this kind of classical beauty. I, that was the woman as as my mind sort of built you know built Rebecca as I watched the movie. That was sort of who sort of came to mind for me, just because I felt like she had such she embodies so many of those great qualities. Like sort of has a severity, but it can uh, cast a warmth, but then can turn on a dime and and be quite cruel. Um, yeah, hey, I'm picking was, up I, what you're putting other, down. The other thing I wanted to talk about too was one thing that. Uh, Ben Wheatley did differently with this film that I thought was quite interesting was uh, at the very end, you know, as it's sort of sinking in that these two lovers, he's a murderer and she's okay with it and how done whatever she can to sort of get him off the hook so they can be in love. There was just a moment when they embrace and then the camera sort of pans over to them. And then she like uh, the, uh, the narrator, uh, the second Mrs. De Winter 
like spikes the camera and then boom, they cut to black. Yep. And it was almost a very kind of cool kind of evil darkness moment that I, that I would really like. So I was, I'd love to throw it out to you guys. What do you think he was trying to accomplish with that, that moment? Cause it's a very powerful, like last moment before boom, we cut to credits and you're never going to be happy. You think you're I, happy? You're I never don't know. Be I, I actually thought it was more indicative of her self-empowerment. Like she's talking about how I can see the woman I've become. She's smoking. She looks much more mature. Not that smoking's great. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then and then she does this. They do this sort of sexy. Like you know, he's got his shirt off. It's one of the sexier sort of more carnal things that we've seen of them. And mm. then boom, she stares right into the lens. And I was a little bit like, oh hell yeah, there she is. Yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sandy, I'm with Johanna on that one. I think that she was kind of someone who was like oh, I know who I am now. I know what I want and I'm unafraid. And it's almost like her husband now having got away with murder gives her a pass to be herself. It was weird. She's like, yeah. oh, power over now. now. Power over him. So but then yeah. again, but isn't yeah. that like the message, like isn't that what the first Mrs. DeWinter had was power over him. Like, that's why I said, like, you're never going to be happy because now she's had the experience where she's grown into being the, the alpha, the power one, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and that with that kind of power comes a great deal of responsibility. And I hope that, she, I hope that she chose to use it for good, but I don't yes. have very high hopes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, is it, is it a moment where, uh, because yeah, she does, her arc is very interesting. She starts as a sort of meek, frightened, you know, like just, you know, by the script, sort of unsure in this world. And then it's a moment where she sort of claims it. And is it suggesting that she is also in danger or that she's, you know, sort of filling Rebecca's shoes? I'm just ruminating here, but uh, feel, suddenly becoming the new Rebecca simply because she has now all this power she's gathered up and you know, like, is she going to win where, I don't know, it felt like, it, re- it read to me like she's, she's winning or will win or has won where Rebecca failed before, which I don't know. Like, it was just a fun, like, there's just some, there's just a moment of darkness in Lily James's she eyes. Became she became Rebecca. She just pops it. Yeah, she's fantastic. I, really I can't it. wait to see what she does next. But isn't it fun how we all, just that one thing brought so much in, up in all of us. Is, I thought it was a great, interesting choice. Yeah. yeah. yeah and totally. if I can just ask you guys, because now I'm curious, Kristen Scott Thomas, her performance, she stole, she stole the movie for me. Oh, yeah. I can't believe we haven't spoken enough about her. Absolute queen. Which, do, do you think she was, because she was clearly in love with the old Rebecca. And what I couldn't figure out was, is this a motherly thing or a lover thing? Well, I think like, it was both. like the way, she, the way she played it. Oh my God. I'm like, it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, has she slept with her or is this yeah. a maternal thing? I couldn't yeah. figure it out. Yeah. I think it and was then at like the end when God. she says that line, you see, it was ours. you see? I was like, Oh my God. She thought the house belonged to her and Rebecca. Yes. 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 Oh my yeah. God, it was juicy. I couldn't oh, yeah. believe yeah. it. Dude. She definitely brought a lot of nuance that um, yes. was not present in the first in the first version of the film, um, yes. and a lot of. Uh, I just I love when they don't tell us everything you know like that's like that's what I love about like even the these two things that we're talking about right now they weren't like there's such nuance there that we can all have a different interpretation 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I saw it as, as um, that uh, Mrs. Danvers was obsessed with Rebecca and felt a stake in her, in her life and in her, um, and in her, even her mistakes or in her power, you know, like that's what I, if it felt more like, she, like there was a worship, even just the way that after she's gone, she's still worshiping all of the things that she had. Um, she lived through her was my take. It was like she lived through Rebecca. Yeah. Mm. The life she, she, the woman she wanted to be, the life she would have loved to have had she been born at a different status. That was, mm. right? Yeah. And her, her sexual think- power and her, you know, monetary power and just everything. Anyway. But I agree, well, Sandy. Like, it was like, it was a mix of maternal and sexual, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, um, do you think, where was I going to go? I mean, how did you feel about the politics of, because I do feel like he, um, he was trying to address, you know, because it, it's a fairly pivotal moment um, in, in uh, you know, in women's liberation as well, right? Like, I mean, we do see her, uh, we do see the narrator, Lily James, uh, wearing pantsuits and, and things of that nature. Um, I read a bit on uh, uh, Daphne du Maurier, who was actually a really fascinating author. She wrote the book and she actually uh, always viewed herself as, as two selves. She had the loving, doting wife aspect, but she felt like she had more of a, she turned it a male energy as a writer. And, um, uh, and later on, she also... I feel like I'm not going to do justice to to the way, but it's just, she. I would recommend for anyone listening to read up on her because she's a truly a fascinating character. But she sort of, uh, as life went on, it was sort of denied. But uh, I think she took a lot of female lovers, um, and uh, she felt herself. Um, you know, I don't think the word transgender ever came around back in that era. But she felt herself to actually be a boy trapped in a woman's body. Mm. Um, and so I think that she sort of wrote to those things and I, and I thought this movie was sort of successful in at least delving somewhat into those politics because, uh, Kirsten Scott Thomas, um, Mrs. Danvers does sort of talk about how trapped you are in this generation. And she is of the mindset that you can only do these things. You can only take care of a house. You can only do this. You can only do this. But certainly by the 1930s into the forties, I would imagine those politics were shifting drastically and Lily James's character uh, is definitely sort of of that new era. She's unsure, but as she comes into her own power, she sort of becomes more successful than uh, Rebecca perhaps was. And I do feel like, I don't know, I'd, I'd love to throw it out to you guys because I do thought, I did think that the film was, you know, I, I feel like the narrator, the second Mrs. De Winter does sort of throw those uh, Mrs. Danvers options sort of out the window and evolves to become her own thing and make her own yeah. sort of I don't- accept, you know? I don't find this piece specific. I mean, and given in the amount of women we see on screen or, or the women that were part of the production team, I don't find the, pol- the politics of this film particularly progressive, um, especially uh, the, the latest one that is told with a 2020, supposedly, you know, through a 2020 lens. Um, because empowerment still comes from you know serving a man you know and um, rich yeah no but like but where does she find her power when she's when you know she's the ends up being the supportive uh, force behind a man and you know as far as the other the the first 
the first uh, Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, you know, she's condemned in all of the different versions in the book and the two films for embodying, mm-hmm. you know, you know, quote unquote, masculine qualities. She ha- knows what she wants. She's promiscuous. She, she spends her money how she wants to. She keeps a different place, you know, like as far as like, I'm, 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 I'm heartened to hear that, you know, Daphne du Maurier, um, you know, pursued what she wanted in life. Uh, but, you know, I would, didn't read, read her book or watch these films thinking that, you know, she was prog- that, like, you know, she had a particular point of view other than, you know, make sure you stay in your lane and don't push men too hard, you know, <laughs> like, but that's, but that's like, that's because that's, in the end, the woman who pushed back against her husband, you know, what, what, is, what did he say that he was the most terrified a few days after they got married when she told him how it was going to be? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that the way it's, it's been the opposite for, genera- for generations upon generations? So, like, I, I don't consider this to be um, explicitly or implicitly feminist piece at all. Um, that was, well, I don't even I know if it passes the Bechdel test, right? Like, I don't know if it does, considering all the women. It's a lot of talk about, you know, the women, how, they, how they're dealing with the men. What do you think? You're nodding along, Sandy. What do you think? I, I'm also really shocked to hear the biography of the author having that background. I think maybe in a way she felt like Rebecca. And maybe... Um, I mean, this is just literally from what you've just said. So this is a really crass um, thought process I'm having right now without doing my due diligence. But, um, (laughs) you know, um, but perhaps she felt like Rebecca. But I'm I'm a little shocked that she gave Rebecca that fate. Because Mm -hmm. as an audience member who doesn't know what the author was going through, which is really sad that she had so much that she was fighting against in that era and for herself that maybe she was doing, maybe it was appropriate at that time because she was making a commentary of how society treats women who are independent and Mm -hmm. society views women who are self-possessed as a threat. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it was a really beautiful metaphor, but it didn't really like we, showing this story again in 2020, it doesn't land because right now society is trying to shift and mold into a different perspective. And and that was a long time ago. And so, um, and, and and it didn't translate to me as, as being progressive at all. But now that I, I know the background of the author, perhaps she felt really trapped and perhaps she felt like she was shot in the stomach by society. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, that's well said. Originally, I, I would echo everything Sandy just said. I mean, I did think that scene, it was short, but it was powerful where she comes up, uh, Lily James come, comes up to the, the attic to talk to Mrs. Danvers and she says, I have two choices. I can either look after a house or marry and I'm too old for both. Um, as a woman who's middle-aged, I was like, boom, doom, boom. Yeah, that's, that's you know, that's that w- I thought that was powerful. But as you say, for the, given the opportunities for, for kind of right, really trying to hit home the progressive message, um, there wasn't as many of them as... You, is there could be right do you think do you think in 2020 it's like a, a responsibility of the storytellers these days to like really like lean into you know because we i talked about on another podcast uh, there's an, there was an author that sort of talked about how he wrote tons of dystopian stuff 
And he sort of came to a realization that he is contributing to the problem, that the fact that we have all this media telling us, you know, like dystopian stories and dark stories and the end of the world. And we're obsessed with like the Hunger Games to, you know what I mean? Like we're filling our kids' heads with like end of the world, end of the world, end of the world. And this author sort of spoke to the fact that he didn't want to put any kind of media out there anymore about those kind of things because he felt like he was contributing to the fact, to, to the world itself sort of, uh, being obsessed with it and, and diving in. I mean, I mean, I mean, I feel like this is a, a pretty obvious answer, but you know, is there an onus on the storytellers of today to not uh, waste money anymore, maybe telling these old stories and maybe to look at, like, I mean, I, I think that's where we kind of get into weird territory with remakes because we're telling a story from the 1930s and, you know, can't, can we not find new exciting voices, you know? Back to the Future, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, there's influences on those movies, but those movies felt like something else. And certainly, like, the crime movies of the 70s and stuff like that, there was a ton of originality. And we're in this weird friggin' place where they're like, you know, this is marketable and this is money. But aren't we getting ourselves into trouble by just telling the same stories over and over and over again? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, is, there, is, there a responsible, is there a responsibility in 2020 to, like, tell stories that maybe not only reveal our shitty qualities as human beings but to like also move the world forward in a in a better way you know in a more positive way yeah, yeah I, mean, well, I think that, that, that speaks to the idea of if you're going to make a remake do it but with a with a clearer lens a different set of lenses so hmm. let's look at that time from 2020 and really examine the gender you know i mean it's clear they're there but a little bit more commentary on the gender roles and yeah, contextualize it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously um, the BIPOC issue is huge. So. Yeah. yeah. Woo. I can't believe we've been going for more than an hour now. So oh, let's, have we? Oh, we have, so let's, <laughs> let's do that thing we do is right. do, do we, the screen scene society, the members of the screen scene society recommend Netflix's Rebecca to our listeners. And Johanna, let's start with you. Okay, I was pointing to Sandy because I just, um, I would absolutely, <laughs> I think it's a, I think, look, uh, we all, we're all stuck at home right now as we, not stuck, we're very clearly choosing mm. to be at home, to be we're planted. Yes. Yeah, we're flattening the curve. So, you know, we're consuming a lot of content. I thought it was a beautiful moment to escape to a romantic time and place that, you know, and then back to the England with the sweeping dramatic, you know, Gothic romance. I, I thought it was a great two hours of escapist fun. I thought that it was sumptuously shot. I thought the performances were delightful. I was swept along. Kristen Scott Thomas was riveting. Um, I think for me, it was two hours uh, very enjoyably spent. So you do recommend it? I do. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Sandy? Or as your you, screen name says, it's Sandy's iPad. <laughs> um, I do recommend it. I think it was a lot of fun. I just really hope that people, which I don't think they will, understand what's missing in the film, which I think cannot be underestimated. That's all. But I, I mean, I even said, um, I said to my sister, you should really watch this movie. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun ride, you know, like you just, you can't stop watching it. It's well acted. It's well shot. It's well directed. It's just, it, it didn't really capture the, the lens of, of our culture in 2020. And that's the only miss, but I mean, it's, it's a great film. Otherwise I would say. Christian. Yeah. I mean, I think even, like I said, having this conversation, 
I, it's interesting because I did notice the diversity today. Like I was like, I'm like, this is really weird because this is all white faces. So I definitely think that there's a lot to be said there. And I do think um, even after, especially now after having conversations with you guys too, I do think that if you're going to remake a movie like this, like I understand the slavish attention to detail, but if you're going to do it, if it's been 80 years since the movie, have a, some a fresher perspective, how bring something new to the table. Like, like if, if you're going to, you know, I, you don't want to be eating the same chili that you were eating 80 years ago. Like find, find something new to say, or maybe a more sophisticated way to say it. <laughs> but, but that being said, I, yeah, if you're looking to, you know, if you're a fan of true murder podcasts or any of those kind of things, like if you're looking for pure escapism, if you're trapped on your couch with it, dumping rain and you're like, I just want some sunny Monte Carlo and some murder mystery. A hundred percent. I, I do recommend this film. I, I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. I love the performances. Uh, we didn't, I feel talk about Anne Dowd enough. I, I just worship the ground she walks on. I love her in Handmaid's Tale, love her in Leftovers. And uh, she was a welcome addition. When I saw her, I was like, yeah, she's in this. Awesome. Um, so overall I do recommend it, but I, I definitely think with, with reservations, yeah. If I can just add a little corollary to mine, what I meant, like, because I was, I felt like I was supposed to sum it up quickly. So I just, I nattered on a lot there. No, he does. But, he does. You can all depend on your expectations. If you just want an escapist bit of entertainment, great. If you want a deeper sociopolitical, you know, look at the times, then you're not going to find what you want there. Do you know what I mean? And that's super valid and it is definitely missing. So, basically just underlining everything you've already said but if you're looking for escapist beauty you know beautiful romance then cool um is there some glaring things missing yes you know yeah. i guess i haven't said if i recommend I it or not and no, and amazingly i i have not known what i was going to say until this very moment um i think there's there's a lot to to admire about the film uh but no, I don't. I don't recommend it. I know, and it was my choice. Um, I I would recommend uh, the Hitchcock version, um, and uh, and then maybe watch this one as a compare contrast um, because uh, I just think that because they were trying to do exactly the same thing that the Hitchcock version was trying to do, the Hitchcock version just did it better. So uh, that's a pass for me. Um, but never a pass on Johanna Newmarch and Sandy Sidhu. Thank you so much for, for joining us here at the Screen Scene Society podcast. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on the social media? I deleted Facebook and Twitter. And what? Early Smart. This year. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> so I'm on Instagram on Sandy Sid. Yay. Okay. What about you, it's Johanna? Hard, it's hard to get mad. I was going to say, it's hard to get mad at pictures. I like Insta because just way less inflammatory and way less hatred and way less anger and rage. So yeah. anyway. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at joenewmarch.com, Instagram at Johanna Newmarch, and Facebook, Johanna Newmarch. Just, you know, as it is. But thank you for asking. It was a delight to be here. I really enjoyed this. Uh, this is a wonderful little, uh, you know, bright spot in the middle, a social bright spot in the middle of a, of a, of a time when we're not uh, socializing much at all, if at all. And so thank you so much for including me in this. It was really delightful. And now I have a bunch of thank yous. 
Thank you to our editor, Simon Firminger, to Dane Develay for our original music, to Johanna Newmarch and Sandy Sidhu for joining us today, to my co-host, Christian Sloan, and to you, our listeners, for listening. Find us on all the socials at Screen Scene Society and online at ScreenScenesociety.com. The Screen Scene Society podcast is a production of Fish Flight Entertainment's YVR Screen Scene. And with that, this meeting of the Screen Scene Society is officially adjourned. Screen Scene Society!